if you would uh, just stay open to that passage as we're going to work through that here um, this morning. But first, uh, we will pray. <clears throat> Set us free, loving Father, from the bondage of our sins, and in your goodness and mercy, give us the liberty of that abundant life which you have made known to us in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. So, make sure I'm turned on. So, kind of a funny story before I get in. Uh, get into the text today. Sean and I actually uh, go kind of way back, kind of like uh, Greg and uh, Jim went way back as well, <laughs> uh, which is kind of funny. I believe I'm about six years older than him, so I think with the time we would have met, he would have been 10 and I would have been 16, starting youth group, and he was in children's church. So it's actually really cool to uh, be in the same setting with him as he's leading us in worship, and it was it was wonderful. Uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, so anyway, quick question. As we get started here, have you ever looked at anyone and said to yourself, at least I'm not like that person, right? You don't have to raise your hands. I don't want to see hands. You can raise your hands if you like. Or have you compared your sin to that of another's in an attempt to justify yourself? I see that hand. <laughs> now, not many of us would own up to this, except for Nick, who just raised his hand. <laughs> but I am certainly positive that many of us in, in this room have done the same thing, Right? I know that, that I've been guilty of, of doing this. I've, I've looked at other people. You know, there's been numerous times where I've, I've looked at someone and said, you know, kind of looking down my nose at them and thought, you know, I'm, you know, at least I'm not like that person or this person. You know, I haven't murdered anyone like Jeffrey Dahmer. I haven't cheated on my taxes or my wife like this person has. Or I haven't lied like this person or lied like that person has lied. It's only a white lie. I didn't tell a big lie. See, this is a dangerous state for us to be in. Right, when we look at ourselves in our standard of morality, as if our standard of morality is the absolute standard of morality and not God's. What happens when we look at His Word? We see the absolute standard of what our moral lives should be like, not the person next to us. It's because of this very posture that we show disdain or contempt for others. And it's because of this uh, posture that we approach God in ways that we ought not to. Pridefulness and haughtiness, thinking that we're better than what we really are not realizing what we really should deserve. Now, last week, we looked at a parable, right? The parable of the persistent widow. And the key concept we learned from that was uh, stated within the passage. It was to pray and faint not. Today, we're going to look at a par- this parable now that reminds us in what manner we ought to pray, in what manner we ought to approach God in prayer, which is something that Christians should ultimately think through and be mindful of. Prayer to God through Christ and empowered by the Holy Spirit is important to the believer, and staying persistent in that is vital. But so is the very posture of our hearts, probably even more so than our persistence. How do we approach God? Do we come to the Lord by way of boasting in our self-righteousness, our self-righteous works? Or do we come to the Lord in a humble state, boasting that we are sinners in need of mercy? See, it's out of our sinful state that we are caused to lean into our own self-righteousness or our justification. And we're going to see this as we work through this text, as Jesus takes two different people at two different ends of the spectrum and compares them ultimately to his standard. And this is what Jesus is addressing to us. So look with me here at verse 9 as, as Jesus addresses the self-righteous in the crowd. He says, He also also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves, they were righteous, and treated others with contempt. Wow. Again, and we relate to this, this particular verse. It, it speaks to us, right? Even to today, 
We've trusted in ourselves, thinking that we are more righteous than others, and therefore we've treated others with contempt. We treat others as if they were beneath us, right? As we, as we are up here on some kind of pedestal, and these other people are down here lower and beneath us. Christ, in this passage, he is denouncing the sin of self-righteousness, which leads to this poor view of others, this contempt of others. Rather than seeing them as, as Im- image bearers of God that are broken and need his mercy, we look at them in a disdainful, contemptive way. I think contemptive is a word. I'm going to go with it. <laughs> Thanks. So this is the disease that all of humanity deals with. Even the greatest people of faith have dealt with this very same thing. It's not unique to us here in the 21st century. 100% of people who drink water and breathe air deal with this sin of self-righteousness, which ultimately is rooted in pride. In fact, think about one of the most common questions that you ask someone. If you are a Christian, you probably have said this same question to someone. If you died today, where would you go? Well, the answer is typically heaven, right? You ask someone, yeah, I, I would go to heaven. Now, when you press that question a little a little further, what is the answer for that, what's the reasoning behind why they think they go to heaven? Because I'm a good person. Exactly. A plus, guys. Do so you see, we have this tendency then to lean into our own deeds as if we can somehow use them to gain access into heaven, into God's good graces. However, the Bible squashes this very notion that we can use our works to get into heaven, to, to enter into God's good graces. We look throughout the entirety of Scripture and it's, and we're completely blasted with this concept of our sinfulness. From the very point of Genesis, right, when the fall happened to both, uh, to the very ending of the New Testament, we see this, right? The Bible confirms it. So for instance, Genesis 6, 5 says to us, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. The prophet Jeremiah also states in the same fashion that our heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Look at Paul in Romans chapter 3, actually all of Romans. Paul's magnum opus, as we like to call it, his, the, probably the very pinnacle of his, of his writing. He says, there are none who are righteous, none who seek after God. Echoing what the psalmist said. So when Jesus then is addressing uh, those who trusted in themselves for that they were righteous... He is addressing us. He's addressing all of humanity. Now that we, we, we understand this concept, uh, that since the fall we have this tendency to lean into our own self-righteousness, right? Our own self-righteous works. We're gonna turn our focus now to the actual parable, the actual teaching that Christ is presenting here. We see two ways that people approach God in prayer. One in which we lean, again, on our self-righteousness, our works, our deeds, the things that we've done. Another in which we lean in on Christ's righteousness, that alien righteousness, righteousness that is not our own. So let's continue through verses 10 through 13 as we look at this comparison between self-righteousness and Christ's righteousness. He says, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. The tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So Jesus comes right out and he attacks this this problem by describing in this parable the, the two ways that these two very different men are praying or approaching him. Their prayer reveals the attitudes which lie behind their behaviors. 
It reveals their heart attitudes. The Pharisee was standing and praying in a manner that revealed that he was not only morally superior, but also religiously superior when you compare the two. He starts out right by thanking God. And how many times have we done this in prayer? We thank God. However, he quickly crashed and burned (laughs) by proceeding to thank God for not being like other people. See, he, he is superior to all others. He's in a class by himself. He showcases his moral behavior by mentioning wretched sinners, extortioners, the unjust, and adulterers, and not including himself in that. And I can even see him gazing over at the tax collector as he's, as he's praying and saying with this prideful, self-righteous arrogance that he is thankful that he's not like this lowly tax collector who lies, cheats, and steals, and extorts money from people. See, the Pharisee is a moral man. He is, he is ethically upright. He leads a virtuous life. He is aware that there is no deficiency within himself, And he is certain that God accepts him, even to the point that he is confident that he has a place in heaven, probably seated at the right hand of Jesus. Secondly, what the the prayer of the Pharisee reveals to us then is his religious superiority. We already looked at moral superiority, that he is better than this person. He is better than this sinner because he's not like him. But now he's, he's showcasing his religiosity. God, as he stands there at the temple, he says, I fast twice a week. If you know anything about the Old Testament, it was only commanded to fast once, was it every year or such, during the time of um, uh, Passover. He says, I pay tithes of all that I get. So the Pharisee is offering to God his morality and his religion. He is righteous not only in what he does not do ethically, but also in what he does religiously. As if He is saying, look, God, I have checked these boxes. As I was reading this text and and preparing for it, I could could definitely put myself in the the Pharisee's shoes. And how many times did I come before God and and thank thank Him that I wasn't like other people, right? I wasn't like those who led immoral lives. And uh, presenting to God my religious superiority by telling Him how many times I've prayed or read my Bible or fasted. We can all relate to this checkbox mentality, right? This checkbox Christianity, as I like to call it. We just go through the motions and check off. I did this. I did this. I did this. I did this. All right. Awesome. My week is good. Jesus loves me. This I know. See, now where his prayer crashes and burns is when his prayer becomes more of a self-congratulations rather than a prayer to God for mercy and grace. One commentator says he glances at God, but then contemplates himself. He expresses no sense of sin, no sense of need. He fails to confess his sin or to petition for pardon or to pray for grace to sustain him in his walk with the Lord. His prayer omits a profound blindness to his true spiritual condition. He makes the classic mistake of thinking that he can rise to heaven by his own power, that he through religion and morality can make himself good enough for God. He's leaning into his own self-righteous works. He's checking the boxes. Again, the Bible teaches us from cover to cover that we are lost sinners that are in need of God's mercy. Right? Even as believers, we are still in need of God's mercy. We are not exempt from this. Now, what this religious man misses is what the lowly tax collector grasps, what he understands, what he contemplates when he sees Christ and his righteousness. Now, when we look at the tax collector, I can imagine the people's faces in the crowd when, when Jesus surprised, surprised them that the tax collector would go up to the temple to pray. 
See, this was not the normative behavior for a tax collector. I mean, sure, he would go up to the temple, but it was certainly not to pray, right? It was to garner money. It was to garner those taxes, and then some. So this is an oxymoron. See, in the time of Christ, tax collectors were considered the scum of Jewish society. Obviously, with, with good reason. Such men were in the employ of the impressive, uh, oppressive Roman government, and thus they would c- be considered traitors to the Jewish people. They were greedy and dishonest, usually relying on extortion for their profit margin, which is probably why the Pharisee said he's not like extortioners. So think about the very, the most vile person in society that you can possibly think of, whoever it may be. That disdain that you feel for that person is what Jewish people felt about tax collectors. It's because of this that they presumed that the tax collector would not pray acceptably or have a right relationship with God or not understand that he was immoral. See, we see from the beginning of the tax collector's prayer is that his prayer highlights a sense of unworthiness. The text tells us that the tax collector, standing far off, not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God be merciful to me, sinner. See, this positioning of himself illustrates to us that he felt unworthy to approach any closer. Now, maybe it was in an attempt to uh, avoid any more of the worthy religious people. Let's face it, even at rock bottom, we tend to remove ourselves from certain people that may be a Christian who may be trying to lend out a helping hand. Because we feel as if those people are going to just shovel on more more uh, guilt and shame, more than we already feel. We will purposely avoid those people. You can just see that with the, with the tax collector, not looking up. He's beating his chest and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, standing as far away as he possibly could. It's also because of this guilt and shame that he couldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven. As if he was trying to hide himself. Again, he beat his breast, which was a sign of grief, a sign of sorrow, of contrition. He knew... I can imagine the words of David were echoing in his soul. God desired a broken and a contrite heart. Another thing that the tax collector's prayer highlights is his need for mercy. See, in his brokenness, he cries out to the Lord, Be merciful to me. Be merciful by forgiving me of my sins. Some translations of this will actually render, and even the Greek, they'll translate a sinner to the sinner. Be merciful to me, the sinner. So the tax collector saw himself a class of all of his own, much like the Pharisee. He was he was uh, the worst of sinners, worse than all the rest. It echoes Paul's statement. He said, I am the chiefest of sinners. See, this is the humble and contrite plea that Jesus is commending. His prayer is not a sign of poor self-esteem. Many people would read this text or, or many believers today would read this and say, well, we just... We just need to get his self-esteem boosted. Opting for pop psychology or counseling just to make him feel better about himself. Well, you're not really that bad of a person. You don't lie, cheat, steal. You're not an extortioner. It's not a sign of poor self-esteem. But it is a sign of a healthy and accurate outlook on who he is in the light, in light of a holy and righteous God. The tax collector has correctly assessed his condition and shown appropriate shame and remorse. He is a sinner. He does need mercy. His prayer has it right. He knows exactly what he is and what he is in need of. He didn't come to God boasting in his works, boasting in his moral and religious superiority. He was better. He approached the throne of grace in humility, in contrition, and in his brokenness, boasting in a sense that he is the most sinful of all people. He didn't compare himself to the Pharisee or to others because he knew the standard for righteous living was God's standard and not other people. I think Ryle said it best. He said, in all our self-examination, 
Let us not try ourselves by comparison with the standard of men. Let us not look at, uh, let us look at nothing but the requirements of God. He that acts on this principle will never be a Pharisee. Those words are still powerful today, right? We see from this comparison that our own self-righteousness, our own checkbox Christianity, leaves us in this unjustified state. Sure, fasting and tithing and, and praying and reading the Word, they're, they're all great things, right? We would all agree with that. Every follower of Christ, everyone who proclaims to know Christ, should do these things in order to grow in Christ. Reminded of the children's church song, if you read your Bible and pray every day, you will grow, grow, grow. However, we can't rest in these alone as our access into kingdom to to uh, wash our sins away to grant us access to god we we can't rely on those things we must rely on the the righteousness of another we must rely on the righteousness of christ for our admittance into his kingdom it is a true self-knowledge that is a to self-righteousness and that is what we see when we look at the standard of god's morality when we look at the word and this is our only hope for eternal life if we rely on our own self-righteousness then then we will be humbled forcefully humbled. We'll see that as we look at verse 14. We see how our self-righteousness leads to this forced humility, to, to God humbling us, not exalting us. He says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, talking about the tax collector, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus demonstrates in this parable what our humble state does to us. When we approach God with this true understanding of who we are in light of who He is, we are absolutely humbled. Our approach to God in prayer is in this humble posture. We can't lift our eyes to heaven. We proclaim that we need mercy and grace rather than what we deserve. The prayer of the tax collector was a humble prayer in which he approached God humbly, boasting in nothing other than his sinfulness. Therefore, that day he left justified and knowingly so because he recognized this and approached God in that manner. He desired mercy and grace and he did not leave disappointed. He left knowing that God's grace and mercy for his life was bigger than any sin that he could have committed. See, his sin was great, but his Savior was greater. The Pharisee, in his approach, he came, again, boasting of his works, his his moral and his religious works. And he looked disdainfully at those that weren't on his level. He came not in a spirit of humility, but one of pride. And it's because of this he left the temple not justified. He left dissatisfied. He exalted himself above other people and then was turned away, forcefully humbled. Jesus, he mentioned this same concept in the parable of the wedding feast in Luke 14, 11. Right? He says, he says to this person who was seeking the best places in, at the wedding feast, he says, so, uh, excuse me, that they would be humbled, right? He says the exact same thing. It's funny because I actually preached that same text. <laughs> He says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. If it's repeated twice in Scripture, it's got to have some sort of weight. Again, religion and morality, those things are those are good, right? We should be moral. God wants us to be. He wants us to be religious in that sense that we follow Him. He commands us to pray and fast and tithe and attend worship and so on. But again, we're not to make these things, uh, the performance of these acts, rather, the ground of our hope of heaven. When we truly understand ourselves, when we truly see ourselves, and we truly see God, then we will approach Him with a sense of our unworthiness. And we will cry out for mercy rather than what we deserve. So the difference, then again, between these two men is the difference between the humble and needy. 
and the proud and disdainful, between the self-righteous and the self-loathing, between those who claim to be without sin and those who know their sin and can plead only for mercy. So in closing, let me ask you, how have you approached life and prayer? Has it been self-righteously and prideful with contempt for others? Not if you understand the gospel. The true grasp of the gospel, it produces the opposite. It produces humility and it produces a gracious acceptance for others, right? For other poor sinners that, like us, need His mercy by true repentance. Humbly prayed and humbly lived out in relationships with others. And we enter into the kingdom of God. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, this passage is so weighty and timely. That we come before you humbly, not as sinners, not recognizing our deeds or things that we have done, but just recognizing, God, the only thing that contributes to our salvation, which is our sin. Lord, as we enter into this time of uh, communion, as we approach your table, we pray that you would humbly be merciful. Mer- we pray humbly that you would be merciful to us, God, sinners who need your grace and your mercy. We thank you for this passage, God. We thank you for what Christ is teaching through us. And Lord, I pray that as your word went forth, God, that you uh, that it would accomplish precisely what it, uh, you intended for it to accomplish. It's in your holy name that we pray. Amen.